No one on the ship deserves to be saved. Everyone is a sinner by choice. And because of that, no one is deserving. How many are going to be saved? I'm speaking in general terms here about the morally cognizant now. You think about those people that know right and wrong. I'm saying the Bible's very clear. It's going to be a few. But when I think about that, I should be thinking about the fact that really no one is deserving to be saved. How many will be saved? A few. Who deserves to be saved? Zero. Less than a few. And I would remind every non-Christian that talks to me about, well, I don't want to know if I'm going to become a Christian because only a few people are going to get saved, at least by Christ's words, a few. I would say, well, God's grace is God's to give. He can be gracious, as gracious as he wants to be. Because you start speaking about the fact that why doesn't God force everyone to be saved or why doesn't God draw everyone to Christ? We can speak about effectual calling and we've done that elsewhere. The bottom line is this, whether it's about the unequal access to the gospel or whether it's about the effectual call of Christ moving people to salvation, we can say God is God and he can give his grace to whoever he wants and when he gives it, it's not to someone who deserves it, which again is the problem with most modern religion. Everyone thinks they deserve God's grace. Matthew 20 verses 11 through 15, on receiving it, this is the parable of the day laborers, the guys who received the payment and later watched God being, uh, watched the, the uh, master being generous to these day laborers and, and getting a higher pay than what they, well, they'll explain it here. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, the last worked one hour only and you made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he, the master replied, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me for my generosity? You should not begrudge God for his generosity. If no one is good, no one seeks after God, if no one is righteous, if everyone is morally worthless, as that passage says, then for God to be gracious to you or to them or to anyone, you can't begrudge him for his generosity because it's gravy because no one deserves it in the first place. God's grace is God's to give. To put it in real stark terms, hard passages to swallow, but good passages to, to exegete if you haven't, and maybe you can listen to my exposition of it on focal point. Romans 9, verses 14 and following. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? If you apply that question, rhetorical question to any issue of what seems from our perspective to be inequality, right? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. I don't have to answer to you about my generosity. Don't begrudge me for my generosity. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say, well, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And the answer to that is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Job, at the end of the book, stops asking questions about what's right and wrong for God to do to him. He finally puts his hand over his mouth and he retracts and repents in dust and ashes and says, I shouldn't have spoken up. I spoke, I didn't know what I was talking about. In the end, it gets down to the fact that God is God and his grace is his to give however he chooses. Even if you want to think in those stark terms, which isn't bad to do, to think in those stark terms, but that's not usually how we're thinking as we're appealing to someone to get in the lifeboat. Well, what about the guy on deck 11? Don't worry about the guy on deck 11 until you're saved. Then you should. 
But let's, before we get to that point, focus on the grace of grace. And by that I mean you can't focus on entitlement, which is where the average non-Christian is. Everyone should be entitled to get on the lifeboat. And the answer is no one should be entitled to get on the lifeboat. No one is entitled. That's a fallacy. You're asking the wrong question to say, why doesn't God save everyone? That is the wrong question. Why? Because no one is deserving. Everyone's born in sin. Everyone is a sinner by choice. All the morally cognizant are sinners by choice. So don't ask me why God doesn't save everyone. God is not entitled to. God can save whoever he wants. Doesn't matter if someone's got a call a thousand times to get in a lifeboat and someone just heard a faint whisper and just felt the listing of the ship and heard an alarm in the distant hallway. It doesn't matter. You could be standing next to a guy yelling for you to get in the lifeboat and the other guy just feels like he should try and find his way to a lifeboat. Either way, to say why doesn't God put everyone in a lifeboat is the wrong question. The right question is why would God save anyone if the problem of sin is what we've just articulated it to be? That's what you should get a non-Christian to at least understand about the problem of sin. It is so severe, it is so systemic, it is so problematic that God should not save anyone. God should take the entire world and everyone in it and put it in the divine trash compactor and hit crush. Ephesians 2, 7 and 8, the whole point, and we'll see this from God's perspective, I think, when we get in his presence the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus is immeasurable. You'll think, not I deserved it, I was entitled to it, why isn't my neighbor here, why isn't my loved one here? You're gonna go, this is just unthinkable that I'm here. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. You don't see it as an entitlement, you see it as an act of grace. It is a gracious act of grace. You need to focus on the grace of what grace is. It's a gracious thing. It's a fallacy to think you deserve it or anyone deserves it. You should be begging us for the opportunity to hear the gospel and get saved, not begrudging it, crossing your arms and saying, why doesn't everyone have this same opportunity as they see it? Exclusivity and biblical inclusivity. Yes, the means of salvation is exclusive. There's only one way. It's been motivating missions for centuries, right? How are they gonna call on him if they haven't believed? How are they gonna believe if they've never heard? How are they gonna hear without someone preaching? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? Well, that's why we say when someone brings the message, man, you're an amazing person. It's so great to see you. I'm so glad you, you brought this message. Maybe in the modern day, we'd speak about, you know, kissing their neck, giving them a hug, saying we're so grateful. The old days in terms of this picture of the Old Testament, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news, that is motivating missions and has, and it should continue to. Once you become an inclusive theologian in terms of, universalism, believing everyone's going to get saved, your mission passions goes away. Why, why send anyone to foreign lands? Why are our people in Guatemala? Why do we send people to, to Cairo? Why do we work in, in other places in the world? Why, why do we care if everyone's going to be saved in the end? Yeah, there's only one exclusive means of salvation. But the few is not tiny. Genesis 2, when speaking of the blessing that's going to come to the whole world, says from a intergenerational perspective, looking through the corridor of time. Yeah, maybe a few proportionally, but as he says to Abraham, as he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 22, 10 chapters after he initially did it, he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. We're talking here about those who are going to be blessed and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Few is not a tiny group of people. It's not a minute, minuscule group of people. The call is inclusive. Think about it. 
Go make disciples everywhere. Go to all the nations. Go everywhere. This is an inclusive message. So when they cross their arms and say, well, I don't get it if it's just you guys that are being saved, this isn't a secret society that has secret handshakes that we're not wanting people to learn. We want to broadcast it. We're broadcasting it for free every day. We're printing it and passing it out everywhere. We're putting Bibles in hotel end tables. We want people to hear, or nightstands rather, we want people to hear the gospel. It's an inclusive call. I love the way Luke 14 puts it. I love studying this passage and preaching on it back in that great chapter, 10 chapters before the end of the book. Parable Jesus says the servant came, reported the fact that the banquet hall wasn't filled, reported it to his master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets, into the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said, go, I love this, to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That is the picture of 2 Corinthians 5. We are there as though God were making his appeal through us, being reconciled to God, and we're giving this message to everyone and anyone, everywhere. Doesn't matter who they are, what strata they're in. The multitude is diverse. Every nation of the earth is going to be blessed. The spiritual progeny and, and descendants of, of Abraham I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number, just like it says in Genesis 12, Genesis 22, from every nation, every tribe, the peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. There's a huge multitude, and it's a diverse multitude. God is not sitting here with a corner saying, well, I'm just going to save my holy huddle. He wants that to be a diverse, big, broad, inclusive group of people. 1 Corinthians 1.26, think of your calling. Look at us. I mean, Corinth. I mean, Corinth was a, as I often say, it was the Orange County of the ancient world. It, it, was, it was well to do and all the rest. And yet he looked around in the church and said, well, look at us. Not many wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Look at the diversity and the cutting through of the strata of all the people in the family of God. So I get it. You want in your sentimental view everyone to be saved because you imagine them to be entitled and you think, well, I don't know if I want to be a Christian if it's so exclusive. It may be exclusive. The means is exclusive. But the message is broad. The end result is big numerically. And God wants this message to go out to every nation, every people group. You ought to be sharing indiscriminately with people from every walk of life. Don't let them reject the gospel because they say Christianity is exclusive. You can't concede the point. It is exclusive in terms of its means. 